This podcast has been brought to you by the Physiological Society. Hello and welcome to Let's Get Physiological. The podcast where we explore some of the weird and wonderful science behind life. Usually on this podcast we talk about humans, but physiology isn't just specific to people. So today we're going to explore the world of animal physiology and learn how some animals have developed aspects of their physiology to help them live in specific environments. We'll be talking to Martina Quagliotto from the University of Glasgow about the science behind an interactive e-learning presentation that she has developed called How Smart a Fish. And to Lucy Hawkes from the University of Exeter about the challenges facing birds at high altitude. I'm Emily Wilde. And I'm Amy Warnock. Now, let's get physiological. So fish aren't exactly painted as the most intelligent of animals. The notion of goldfish having a memory of just a few seconds is widely believed, and this is further illustrated in popular culture. For example, Dory, the Pacific blue tang in Finding Nemo, is depicted as very forgetful. So it's fair to say that we may have some preconceptions about fish intelligence. But why do we have these preconceptions, and are they true? We spoke to Martina Quagliotto from the University of Glasgow to find out more. Multiple factors may be linked to the reasons why fish are persistently thought to not be smart. So generally, people pay more attention to animals that they consider more charismatic. These are usually warm-blooded and terrestrial animals, such as mammals and birds, or more similar to us as the primates. Fish Instead, not only can be seen as creatures very different from us, but also they don't have a facial expression so that we cannot read what's going on in their head, for example. But also they live in an environment where humans have little access to. So, people can easily manifest alienation to this unknown world and its inhabitants, the fish. And all this reflects on the feeling that fish have very little in common with humans, generating a what we call reverse anthropomorphisms towards these animals. Together with Professor Felicity Huntingford, in our interactive e-learning presentation on smart fish, uh, we explain that contrary to their popular image, fishes are capable of all the main kinds of learning recognizing other vertebrates and that they remember what they learn for as long as this is useful for them. There are tons of scientific peer-reviewed studies that demonstrate that fishes are capable of all the broad kinds of learning that have been identified in mammals, including habituation, imprinting, classical Pavlonian conditioning, and also social learning. So it does seem that these preconceptions are misconceptions. Not only do fish show evidence of all the types of learning that vertebrates do, but they are also able to remember information for as long as it's useful for them, not just three seconds. But what do we really mean when we talk about intelligence? A dictionary definition of intelligence is uh, the ability of acquire and apply knowledge and skills. What we are talking here is learning. And there is a huge scientific literature on learning in fish. And through learning, fish gain both knowledge, for example, where landmarks are, 
and uh, skills. For example, how to catch and eat an unfamiliar type of prey. And fish make a very good use of both. For instance, fish have great skills on navigation and some of them involve a high degree of learning. Intertidal gobies, for instance, during low tide, can safely jump from a rock pool to another until they reach the open sea without stranding. A field study showed that these gobies, in order to succeed in these maneuvers, memorized the landmark featuring the neighboring rock pools during the high tide. And this information allowed them to be oriented and find the correct way to jump in a pool or in the open water without seeing where they were going to live. They are therefore acquiring knowledge and applying it in this particular context. So intelligence is pretty difficult to define and measuring intelligence in humans and animals is notoriously challenging. But there is a huge amount of evidence out there that fish are able to acquire and then apply knowledge, definitely intelligent behaviours. So what are some other examples of fish showing complex intelligent behaviours? And this example focuses on the relationship between cleaner fish and their clients. This is a famous example, an example of cooperative behaviour between species. The cleaner brass is a coral reef fish that makes a living from removing parasites from the skin of other reef fish species that are called clients when presenting themselves at the cleaning station. However, cleaner brasse naturally prefer feeding on mucus rather than parasites. Therefore, clients need to adopt some strategies to promote cooperation such as punishment, early living, or partner switching. On the other hand, cleaner brassers need to develop self-control of their choices and actions in order to maintain their relationship with the clients. And this skill is proper to obligate cleaner, which can outsmart even primates in this task. Cleaners can sporadically cheat and bite their clients, but this would happen when there are no potential clients in their proximities. They are pretty smart. So such smart behaviors of the cleaner brasse show some complex cognitive mental processes that are aspects of what we call the Machiavellian intelligence usually attributed to humans and monkeys. So this Machiavellian intelligence is the capacity of an organism to be in a successful political engagement with social groups. These Blue Street Cleaner Vasa are able to make tactical decisions based on whether or not they should take a bite out of their client fish, based on a number of factors such as how dangerous the client fish is, how likely the client might be to visit other cleaning stations instead, and even whether the previous interaction with that client fish was positive or negative. This all requires some pretty amazing memory. One Vrasa can complete up to 2,000 cleaning sessions each day and may be able to keep track of more than 100 individual clients. But when it comes down to physiology, how does the brain of a fish differ from a human? First of all, I would like to emphasize the similarity and differences between fish and mammalian brain, as humans are also mammals. Both fish and human brain have the same broad structure formed by hindbrain, midbrain and forebrain. However, 
they look uh, different because the fish brain and actually all non-mammalian vertebrates lacks a, a folded cerebral cortex, that characteristic outer layer of grey matter covering the core of white matter. Underneath the cerebral cortex, fish and other vertebrates, through their common ancestry, share with mammals a number of subcortical structures that are involved in generating complex behavior and emotional traits. So, fish brains present evolutionarily conserved homologous regions to the mammalian brain, with also similar functions. For instance, the homologous to the mammalian hippocampus is involved in spatial learning and memory in fish. And the homologous to the amygdala is involved in conditioning and the generation of emotional states like, for example, fear. This suggests that uh, these separate memory systems could have appeared early during the evolution of vertebrates, having been conserved through phylogenesis. To be clear, I don't minimize uh, uh, the differences between the brains of mammals and other vertebrates like fish and birds. For sure, the presence of a huge cerebral cortex in humans will have implications for how complex behavior is controlled in humans. So while human brains are a lot more complex than those of a fish, there are certain areas of the fish brain that are homologous to the human brain, meaning they're similar in position, structure and evolutionary origin. For example, the fish homologous to the hippocampus, which is known to be important in learning and memory in humans, is also involved in spatial learning and memory in fish. So the brains of human and fish do seem to be more similar than we might expect, all the more reason not to dismiss fish as having a bad memory. But why is it important for us to learn about the intelligence of fish? There are two main things that we need to say on why it is important to learn about fish intelligence. First of all, because the scientists study the abilities of fish and how their brain works, they also enhance at the same time a general understanding of the complex behavior and underlying brain function in vertebrates, including mammals. Second, fish not only represent one of the greatest resources of protein worldwide, but they also have a crucial role in the marine and freshwater ecosystems. Sustainable management of fish is essential to maintain healthy and productive aquatic environments. So, considering smartness of fish within strategic plans of conservation may enhance their effectiveness. For example, marine reserves should be planned to take into account existing landmarks for fish to create mental maps of the environment. Finally, successful restocking programs should apply environmental enrichment during rearing of fish in captivity. So, smarter fish can be released in the wild. Fish belong to the oldest group of living vertebrates and are at the root of the evolutionary tree. So learning about them can help us to understand how we as humans evolutionarily fit in. Learning about the intelligence of fish is also important from a sustainability perspective. By learning about fish, we can ensure that we farm them in a sustainable manner and also ensure the conservation of marine ecosystems. If you are interested in finding out more, I'd really recommend looking at the interactive e-learning presentation, How Smarter Fish, 
developed by Martina and her colleague Felicity Huntingford. They have compiled a huge variety of different examples, illustrating amazing learning and memory feats in fish. You can find the link in the podcast description. So now it's time for physiology, true or false. So this is the part of the show where we try and bust some of the myths and misconceptions in physiology. Okay, so as we're obviously talking about animal physiology, the question I have for you today is, do bears hibernate? Oh, um, goodness. I feel like I should know this. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to go for yes. I'm going to go for yes. Well, it depends on how you define hibernate, to be honest with you. Because bears, while many people think they do hibernate, they're not actually true hibernators. Oh, okay. Yeah, so bears do have a winter resting period. But instead of truly hibernating, they enter a state that many refer to as torpor, which is a state of decreased physiological activity in an animal, usually related to a reduced body temperature and metabolic rate. But a lot of scientists still debate whether this is actually the best term to use. Some think winter sleep is better or winter rest because true hibernation could probably also be defined as torpor. So it's a bit of a one of those things where no one knows how to define it. But bears basically aren't true hibernators because true hibernators, like hedgehogs, they show a huge decrease in body temperature from their normal body temperature. So normally they're around 33 to 37 degrees Celsius. And this falls to around 7 to 10 degrees Celsius when they hibernate to match the temperature of their surroundings mm-hmm. and they also show a huge decrease in heart rate so the normal heart rate of a hedgehog is between 190 and 280 beats per minute when active but it averages to just under 14 beats per minute when they hibernate wow so a proper decrease yeah and true hibernators because they've reduced their body temperature so much and their heart rate it's really hard to wake them up so they won't generally be aroused by loud noises or things like that it's like me in the morning <laughs> yeah Maybe you're a true hibernator. Maybe. (laughs) Whereas bears, on the other hand, reduce their body temperature by about five degrees Celsius. So they do reduce it, but not by that much. And their heart rate and metabolic rate reduces by up to 30%. Um, So again, it's not loads, but it does mean that they're able to be aroused and defend the den any time. So a lot of people, you know, if they're going around a forest during winter, they might think it's safe because the bears are hibernating. But no, they can actually be aroused very quickly from their state. So be careful and take your bear spray. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So one of the reasons they can't enter full hibernation is that it's not possible for them to reduce their body temperature to such a low level. Because if you think about it, they're so huge. They've got such a big body mass. If they were to reduce their body temperature to like five, 10 degrees, the amount of energy required to get that body temperature back up is just so much. They would actually require an external energy source like they cannot save enough energy up in their bodies to get bring that their battery body temperature out. Temperature. <laughs> <laughs> but they also have some other pretty cool physiological adaptations, such as they can recycle urea, which is the waste product in our urine, into essential amino acids while they're in their sort of winter snooze. Wow. Wish I could yeah. uh, do that. Something useful. I know, right? So exactly how bears are able to do this, like manage their energy balance, temperature curves and their kidney function, it's a little bit of a mystery. But it's quite interesting to human medicine because if we think about it, the fact that bears lie around for weeks without suffering a breakdown of bone or muscle mass, uh, the skin mm. doesn't develop sores, you can kind of make a link to one of the biggest challenges faced by geriatric medicine. Um, so, yeah, bears aren't true hibernators, but they do have a, a winter snooze. 
So now it's time for Physiology in Film. So this is the part of the show where we investigate some of the physiology behind the blockbusters. So today I am going to do a bit of a you, Amy, and I'm not actually going to focus on one film, which is an oh, Amy great. speciality. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to focus more on a kind of general gimmick used in a lot of films like Doctor Doolittle, Zookeeper, Aladdin, Narnia. Can you kind of okay. guess where I might be going? Is it something to do with talking animals? Yeah, ah. exactly. Talking animals. And now I know you can't just have a gossip with your gecko. A natter with your newt, if you will. Sorry, <laughs> I'm so sorry. But um, what I'm interested in is whether there are any animals that you can actually have a chat with. So okay. maybe kind of the obvious animal that springs to mind is the parrot. Uh, oh, yeah. Parrots are one of the few animals considered to be vocal learners, meaning they can imitate sounds. But they're not the only bird that can do this. Mockingbirds have been known to imitate other species, including frogs and crickets. And lyrebirds have been shown to mimic sounds like chainsaws and cameras. (laughs) So what makes parrots particularly good at mimicking human sounds? Well, part of this answer lies in their vocal tracts. So their vocal tracts have quite a complex musculature and their thick but still quite flexible tongues may help them to produce kind of these human speech sounds more easily. But it's not just their vocal tract anatomy. In 2015, a group of researchers led by some people at Duke University uncovered key structural differences in the brains of parrots. So they suggested that what made them especially good at mimicking sounds was that they had these kind of defined centres in the brain that control vocal learning and they called, well, they're called cores. And then in addition to this, they also have what scientists called shells or outer rings, which are also involved in vocal learning. And these shells are bigger in species of parrots that are well known for their ability to imitate human speech. But not only this, these areas in parrots also show some special patterns of gene expression, which the scientists speculate might explain why some parrots are able to learn to dance to music. (laughs) But one interesting question is whether they can actually understand what they're saying. So we've all seen like parrots saying like, who's a pretty boy then? Or, you know, but but do they know what they're actually saying? Yeah. Um, Well, researchers at the University of Georgia, USA, decided to investigate this. um, And they were interested in parrots' spontaneous vocalisations and wanted to see if parrots might change what they said to fit different situations um, without being prompted. So they found one African grey parrot. And as, you know, both of us as scientists know, one isn't the greatest uh, sample size. We're talking <laughs> not a about a higher number. <laughs> not a higher number. We're talking about quite a, a well, we're talking about a case study here. But they found that in this African grey parrot that speech wasn't random. The bird known as Cosmo altered what he said according to what people were present, where they were, what they were doing, and this suggested that there was maybe some awareness of kind of the context for the speech. But it's not just birds that have been seen to kind of imitate speech sounds. One elephant could mimic human speech to produce several words of Korean by placing the tip of his trunk into his mouth to modulate his vocal tract. Wow. 
And some whales and dolphins also naturally, they learn hundreds of new vocalisations throughout their lives. I think there have been some quite interesting documentaries on uh, dolphins and whales and teaching them to speak. Yeah, Um, I've seen that one actually. Yeah, (laughs) you know the one I mean. Um, But what about species of animals a little bit closer to home? Well, in 2016, a group of researchers investigated the ability of non-human primates to produce human speech sounds. So previously it was thought that their kind of inability to talk was due to their vocal tract anatomy. However, in this study, they kind of x-rayed these monkeys and they found that the macaque a species of old world monkey well their vocal tract could easily produce adequate range of speech sounds to support spoken language yet they lacked a speech ready brain to control it so they could so they could physically you know anatomically be able to speak if they had had the the brain brain to be able to do it so can animals can animals speak well some animals can imitate human sound and some may have the anatomy but just not the brains but whether these animals can actually understand what they're saying well that's still up for debate and might be a might be a while before we can chat to our pets After talking to Martina about fish intelligence, we thought we should go from the sea to the sky. And we were lucky enough to catch Lucy Hawkes talk at our Extreme Environmental Physiology Conference, which was hosted in 2019 in Portsmouth. Lucy's based at Exeter University, but her research takes her all over the world, from Iceland to Mongolia, studying the drivers of migration in animals. In this talk, Lucy spoke about the unique cardiorespiratory physiology of birds, So firstly, what's so special about birds? Birds hold an awful lot of the world records when it comes to animal migration. This bird is called a great snipe. Um, This bird is capable of doing nearly 100 kilometres an hour and maintaining that for about 96 hours at a time. So pretty impressive stuff. A quick side story, a sniper, as in a military sniper, actually gets its name from this bird. When this bird is in its breeding grounds, it has a very erratic flight pattern and only the finest marksman would have been able to shoot a snipe. So if you were a sniper, you were the finest shot there was. So that's where a sniper gets their name from. Most snipers don't even know that. Um, This bird, the bar-tailed godwit, it weighs about 250 grams, but when it gets ready to migrate, it gets up to about 500 grams. It has the same fat content as clotted cream, and it uses this to do an 11,000 kilometer migration, which it does in just seven days. We know from its flight speed, it cannot be stopping to eat, to drink, and it probably isn't sleeping either. So this is a really spectacular animal. This is the Arctic Tern, which holds the world record for the longest distance travelled by any migrant within the course of a year. They breed in the Arctic and they spend the the boreal summer in Antarctica. So they make a planetary migration every single year. And these guys weigh about 100 grams, but they're 100 grams of pure fury. I'm currently studying these in Iceland and they're they really hate everyone and everything. If you go in their nesting colony, they will just come down and attack you and your head's bleeding and it's brilliant. I love an animal with a personality and this one is probably the best of the lot. The world's highest altitude record is held by the bar-headed goose, which you wouldn't have necessarily thought would have been an altitudinal champion, but indeed it is. And these have been tracked up to 7,290 metres. And one of the main reasons that birds are capable of holding all of these world records is because they have enormous VO2 max. VO2 max basically refers to the maximal oxygen uptake that a person 
or a bird can use during intense exercise. VO2 max is measured in millilitres of oxygen used in one minute per kilogram of body weight. So for an untrained female human, you're looking at a VO2 max of around 30 to 35. That's 30 to 35 millilitres of oxygen used in a minute per kilogram of body weight. And for a male, it's slightly higher, around 35 to 40. And in birds, let's say the common pigeon, their VO2 max is a staggering 295. So why do birds need to have such huge VO2 max values? They need to have huge VO2 max values because flight is actually very expensive. It's much more expensive, almost double the cost of running. But while it's very expensive per unit of time, it's actually very cheap per unit of distance. So if you want to travel over a long distance, you really want to be flying. Actually, you want to be swimming, but you know, you've pretty much evolutionarily forked down that path. You're not going to suddenly turn yourself into a whale. So you pretty much want to be flying. And the reason that birds can manage these huge VO2 maxes is because of their unique cardiorespiratory system. So birds have a lung, as you might imagine, but their lung is actually quite small. It's about 27% smaller than a mammal of similar size. And the lung has an important role in oxygen extraction, as you might imagine, but it plays no role in mechanical ventilation and birds completely lack a diaphragm. Instead, the bird is mechanically ventilated via a system of air sacs. And these air sacs go all the way through the bird's body, from the abdomen to the thorax. They even have some that extend up into the humerus and into the head. So they're incredibly full of air, essentially, if you like. The point of this zany air sac system is that whereas we have this tidal biphasic ventilation system, birds instead have a unidirectionally ventilated lung. So if you have a look at the fresh oxygenated air coming into the chicken's mouth, it travels first to the back of the bird, and then it's actually traveling up towards the front of the chicken. And you see that some of that fresh air travels into the chicken's lung, but some of that fresh air is traveling into the abdominal air sacs. When the chicken then breathes out, the air in the lung is moving out of the chicken's trachea, but then the air in the air sacs is moving into the lung. So that every time a bird breathes in, fresh air travels across its lung, and every time it breathes out, fresh air travels across its lung. So they are at least twice as good at anyone, at um, at any, any mammal or human, at extracting oxygen from the environment. And this is true of any bird, even non volant ones as well. So for humans, we breathe air into our lungs and then breathe out carbon dioxide in the opposite direction. But for birds, there's almost a kind of one-way circuit set up. So when they breathe in, the air travels to the back of the bird and some of that air travels to the lung and then some of it travels into these air sacs. But then when they breathe out, the air sacs empty back into the lung. This means that every time a bird breathes in, it gets fresh oxygen. And every time it breathes out, it also gets fresh oxygen. So what does all this mean for the respiration ability of birds? Although the avian lung is quite small, if you add together the avian lung and the air sacs, you find that birds actually have a total respiratory volume about three to five times larger than a mammal of similar size and about a 15% greater respiratory surface area. The blood gas barrier is surprisingly thin. It's about two thirds thinner than it would be in a comparative mammal. And that's possible not least because it's continuously inflated. It doesn't have to inflate and deflate all the time. So it kind of gets quite a lot of mechanical strength from the fact that it just remains inflated. And birds can hold about one and a half times more blood within their pulmonary uh, circulation as well. So why do birds need this superior cardiorespiratory physiology? Well, birds often fly at high altitude where the air pressure is lower 
This means that, although the amount of oxygen in the air remains constant, the amount of absolute oxygen in the lungs and the blood is less. And when humans travel to high altitude, they are often faced with a range of nasty side effects, from altitude sickness to high-altitude pulmonary edema. This is caused by fluid gathering in the lungs and is the most common cause of death from altitude sickness. So do birds face similar problems at high altitude? A high altitude pulmonary edema has never been recorded in a bird. We haven't deeply looked for it, admittedly, but because they have this unidirectional system of ventilation, it stands to reason that any fluid that could build up in the lung would be simply blown out the other end. So as far as we are aware, birds do not suffer from high altitude pulmonary edemas. So all birds actually excel at altitude, but there are some species that do better than others. I've satellite tracked bar-headed geese flying up to 7,300 metres, but they were thought to have been seen by George Swan, a member of Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay's climbing party, above Everest in 1953. And so they've been subject of a huge amount of study. They're not the only species occurring at altitude. There's lots and lots of different birds. There's waterfowl, there's raptors, there's uh, passerines, songbirds, and other, and other birds that have been seen there as well. Um, most notably, I think there's a, a hooper swan. I mean, this is a big swan that's been seen at 8,000 metres by a pilot who presumably wasn't so addled by hypoxia that he wasn't capable of flying an aircraft. So I think we should probably believe that. And then a, a Ruppel's vulture, which was sucked into an aircraft engine a, short, a little over 11,000 metres. And these aircraft strikes are actually a really great empirical data set because they leave behind some evidence <laughs> called snarge, which one can scrape off the propeller blades and use DNA molecular analysis to work out which species it came from. So these are you know, robust points of data for me. So all birds excel at high altitude and a lot better than humans fare. But just how much high altitude can birds withstand? So this very early study, which was carried out in the 70s, they got a bar-headed goose, a Canada goose and a Pekin duck, shoved them in a box and basically pumped out the air to simulate hyperbaria. And they scored the birds on how agitated they were, whether they could walk around steadily, stand up and hold their heads up. Because they're birds and they're pretty amazing at altitude, they could start the experiment at 7,620 metres. 9,150, everyone's still basically okay. But by 10,668 metres, at this point, the Canada goose has now lost the ability to uh, stand up and hold its head up. So it's taken out of the experiment and they carry on with just the bar-headed goose and the Peking duck. By this point, the Peking duck's not looking great either, so it comes out of the experiment, but it carries on to a massive 12,190 metres. And although the bar-headed goose can't stand up very well, and it's got a plus-plus for agitation, so, oh no, just one plus, so mildly irritated, it's still able to, to, to stand up and hold its head up. So, you know, there was a good evidence to suggest that this bird may have something special about its physiological capabilities. So what is special about the physiology of the bar-headed goose? And how were they able to excel at such high altitude, such as during migration? And they're able to do this via a massive increase in heart rate. So when a bar-headed goose is flying around, it would typically have a heart rate of about 350 beats a minute. During exercise in severe hypoxia, it can get its heart rate up to 500 beats a minute. Some work by a colleague of mine, Graham Scott, in, uh, who was at UBC at the time, um, actually looked at the cardiac capillary density for bar-headed geese and barnacle geese and discovered that bar-headed geese have about 25 to 35% more capillaries per unit of area in their hearts than barnacle geese do. And we think this is quite literally at the heart of their ability to be able to maintain these massive heart rates even in severe hypoxia. And therefore, of course, also to distribute the, the oxygenated blood to the locomotory muscles. So bar-headed geese are altitude champions. They are able to travel some 930 miles across the Himalayas during migration with a range of tactics to make sure that, 
even in low pressure situations where it's hard for them to get the oxygen they need, they can keep pumping oxygen around their bodies and fueling their long flight. Okay, so now it's time for, oh my God, I can't believe it's a research study, but it actually is. So this is the part of the show where we investigate some of the weird and wonderful physiological studies. So today I'm going to talk about everyone's favourite topic, the birds and the bees. Great. pretty apt as we're talking about animal physiology. (laughs) So this is all about how frogs helped us to learn more about the age-old question of where do babies come from. Yeah, frogs, obvious candidate. Of course. Now, it's obviously known now that reproduction happens when a sperm fertilises an egg, blah, blah, blah. But there was a time before when this wasn't known. And before the exact mechanisms of reproduction were known, there was quite a lot of guesswork to how we, or life, came into being. Yeah. So one of the most popular theories of reproduction was called preformationism, which was very popular. And it's the theory that organisms develop from miniature versions of themselves. Oh, I've heard about this. Yeah. Yeah. But there was also the theory of spontaneous generation, which was quite popular. For example, many thought that the fact that maggots appear on rotting food proved that life could actually just spontaneously generate as well. Well, that is absolutely terrifying. Isn't it? Yeah. And so this is where the hero of our story comes in. He was an 18th century Italian physiologist and priest called Lazzaro Spallanzani. So Spallanzani repeated a 1736 experiment by the French scientist René-Antoine Ferchault de Remois. Nice, good pronunciation. In which he made tiny trousers for male frogs. I'm sorry, what? Yes, tiny trousers. (laughs) (laughs) So Spallanzani made some tiny trousers out of taffeta for some frogs, specifically his male frogs. And he then released them to, and I quote, seek the female with equal eagerness and perform as well as they can the act of generation. Oh, but with trousers on. But with trousers on. Oh, no. So what he found was that, as well as making them look incredibly stylish, the trousers prevented the frogs from releasing their sperm into the water around the female frog's eggs, which kept them from being fertilised. So those eggs that had been exposed to a trouser frog did not produce tadpoles. Trousers. But the, fro- <laughs> but the frogs that didn't have trousers on were able to fertilise the eggs and did produce tadpoles. Right? Okay. okay. Yeah. So he was the first to show that fertilisation requires both spermatozoa and an ovum or an egg. Okay. But he didn't really draw quite the right conclusion. Oh my God. Does he think that like trousers in some way had something to do with it? Or? If you, <laughs> if you wear taffeta think. trousers, you are repellent to women. Yes, exactly. It's just that women don't like taffeta trousers. That's the... Uh, I mean, um, that's probably true. <laughs> I can't imagine it being comfortable. But no. Anyway. So earlier I mentioned this theory of preformationism, And unfortunately, this was a theory that Spallanzani got behind. In preformationism, there were two camps. The spermist approach, where they kind of <laughs> postulated that each sperm contained a complete preformed humanoid. Of, co- of course they did. Of course. Of, of course. Of co- of but course then there was also the ovist camp, you'll be Woo! pleased to hear. <laughs> Uh, so these people believed that the egg contained all that was needed. And ultimately, while Spallanzani showed that both the egg and the sperm were necessary, he was a devout ovist. So he concluded that there must have been something in the sperm that acted as a chemical trigger to okay. make the egg form into babies, rather than 
the sperm actually having any essential role at all. It was more that it was just a chemical trigger, but the ovum still contained everything necessary. Got you. But regardless, it was still an important experiment and hilarious because he's making trousers for frogs. Um, and he actually then went on to become the first to perform in vitro fertilization with frogs. Oh, wow. Oh, with yeah, frogs. Okay. And that, yeah. In, yeah. <laughs> with okay. I mean, that's still uh, impressive. Then, Probably harder. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So he was the first to perform in vitro fertilization with frogs and also artificial insemination using a dog. So even though he didn't draw quite the right conclusion... I think we can say that Balanzani's trouser frog experiment has probably done some good in the world and helped yeah. us learn more about reproduction. So that's all from us on animal physiology. Thanks to Martina Quacchiotto and Lucy Hawkes for their fascinating insights into the world of fish and bird physiology. If you've enjoyed the podcast, make sure to subscribe. And we'll see you next time for more interesting research on the science of life. I've been Amy Warnock. And I've been Emily Wilde. And we've been Getting Physiological. This podcast has been brought to you by the Physiological Society.